Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Dedicated to Henry Foreman. In the year of the primal Good afternoon, good evening, good whatever, good whomever. This is Alan Averill, this is Agitators Anonymous, episode 167. Today's podcast is an interview or a chat with James Plotkin. Uh, James is one of the most prolific underground artists of the last 30 plus years. I guess I first heard of him or knew of his work with, um, I think I tape traded a regurgitation demo somewhere in 1988, before they changed into old lady drivers. We get into that in the podcast right at the beginning, all the way running to his newest release, which is a new Canate album. So along the way, James has been in OLD, that's Old Lady Drivers, Scorn, uh, Phantom Smasher, Clist, Jodis. I mean, the collaborative releases from Digital Hardcore, Grindcore, uh, to dark ambient drone. I mean, there are so many releases, it almost makes my head spin looking at his Wikipedia page. We try and go through all of them and just really what it's like to be a sort of outsider artist in the music industry for such a long time. Um, James mastered the new Primordial album, actually made an amazing job of it. And that's when we started talking about, hey, it would be cool to have a chat. It's a little bit shorter than some of my other podcast interviews, but... Having said that, you do notice that um, there are there's a tail off in the last 10, 20 minutes sometimes with people listening. So maybe this is better. 40 minutes, short, sharper, sweeter, more succinct. James is also a busy man, took some time off his mastering schedule. He also masters and mixes records. He's done Pelican, Isis, Sun, um, many, many stuff. Earth, Nadia. Yeah, I could go on the list of really cool bands he's worked with. Uh, so this is a really cool um, chat and look into the life and times of... Uh, as I said in my uh, YouTube description, you can watch our ugly mugs over on YouTube if you want to go and just put in Alan Averill or follow the links underneath. Um, and he's a sort of outsider and a kind of genuine, I suppose you could say, it sounds like a cliche, but sort of groundbreaker, moving into virgin territory with bands like Scorn and stuff uh, within the underground music scene. And so let's get into it. But before we do so, I can say uh, you can support the show over at patreon.com slash Alan Averill. There's a... Um, other podcasts, rehearsals, bonus material, all sorts of other stuff happening over there. 
um, that doesn't get released anywhere else. You can go over there. There's no tears. Uh, the show is sponsored by Metal Blade Records. You can go to IndieMerch.com slash Metal Blade Records and use the promo code AA2023 for 10% off your order, which, believe me, um, counts for a lot these days as mail postage costs have just gone up and up and up. For loads of cool stuff up there. Go and have a look. Um, if any of you are in bands or, well, not even in bands, if you need, say, a backdrop for behind your tattoo stall or all sorts of stuff, um, send me an email at alan.averill at gmail.com and for any other requests and I can forge you to the people who can deliver you one of the uh, highest quality backdrops, fireproof, all that kind of thing at the best price. Um, all right, let's get into it. James Plotkin. Right. Well, the week has been a shitstorm. Let's start there. Mr. James Plot, Mr. James Plotkin, um, your your Wikipedia page, which I am on right now, gives me a headache. There's so much creativity. <laughs> That's where the point. You, Just trying to bring people pain, right? Yeah. Well, where do you even get the time to do all this stuff? I mean, I know it's probably a really banal, basic bitch question, but. It's just, you know, because I, I want to go back to the beginning of it all uh, in, a, in a moment, but you just dropped a new Canate album. Like, what has it been, 14 years? Yeah, something like that. So, well, where's, uh, where do you find the time, the hours in the day? I mean, you know, I haven't really done anything but music for, shit, it's got to be like 15, 15 to 20 years at this point. I mean, you know, I've had day jobs and and shitty career moves just like everybody else yeah but uh yeah. you know at one point i just i just you know just the thought of living a life inside uh you know a cell and a fucking in a company in a cubicle somewhere i just i think i'd probably rather die than that so and i mean i don't really i never work i never work out in that situation i've always got you know I guess you could call it an attitude problem when it comes to dealing with superiors and stuff like that. I just, it just doesn't work out and it never lasted. And I, I mean, I was doing music since I was a teenager, so mm, it would well, be the day, the day job, you know, and then all night and weekends working on music. But at some point I was, you know, what's that? No, it's just, it's the, like, I mean, you're doing this so much mastering so much other stuff. Is it what do you like? Are you doing that during the day, and then kind of at night you're adding little bits onto the Canate record and sort of trying to find the headspace? Pretty much to do different things, like yeah. When if I have something going on that I need to uh, spend more time on, I'll I'll, I'll limit my uh, my my workload when it comes to max mastering and just studio work and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I mean it's pretty much it's pretty much all day and all night, so. It, you know, it, I'm sure you you get it. It's like after a while, it's just second nature, and you just accept the fact that that's that's what you've chosen to do with your life. And it just, you know, you stop thinking about it. You just yeah. you just get yeah. shit done. Yeah. Well, you're. I mean, I suppose what it is is after a certain amount of time, maybe you know, we all kind of started off with our form, early formative bands, and then end of the '80s, started the start of the '90s, and then after about ten or twenty years in it, you realize like, oh, I am a lifer. And I'm gonna, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to live out this, you know, as this character on the periphery of society, as you say, um, not fitting into yeah. nine to five. And you just sort of accept that that's 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 going to be where you are. You're not going to be reeled in somehow at yeah. your late forties or whatever into and like uh, normalcy. Like you, like you put it, it's like you don't. 
you're not even conscious of it while it's happening. It's like at one point you just sort of sit back and realize, oh shit, I am a lifer. It's like you don't you don't start out with like, oh, I'm gonna be a lifer, I'm gonna do this and nothing else, because you you have to compromise to be able to pay rent and eat yeah, yeah. and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. And uh, you know, if you do a good job and you do it long enough, eventually, you know, you come to this realization like I, I guess I am in it for life. Well, That's I think all I know at this point. I think once you hit the 40 mark, uh, yeah. and you guys like, oh, right, okay, I've hit the 40 mark. We've been, I've been at it since I'm 15 or 16. You kind of go, I mean, what's, there is no real turning back once you, you're not going to be able to take And then 45 rolls along and you're kind of, okay, okay, you know. <laughs> but I want to go back to yeah. uh, the first, I mentioned it when you were, um, uh, this is kind of like this sort of, just sort of random conversations, but you just mastered the new Primordial album. And I said to you during the mastering, oh, my memory, first memory of you is regurgitation. So my, I want to bring you back oh, to what, 1987, 88, because I, yeah. I, I tape traded that demo uh, regurgitation. And my question was, is that Blackie Lawless on the cover of the, of the artwork? <laughs> I know. It's not. It's just a random, nah. random dirt bag, I guess. <laughs> But, you know, if that's what you want to see it as, go right ahead. Excellent. I think we did our first demo when, when I was like 16 or 15 in that band. Yeah. And uh, that's actually sort of what, what hooked me when we uh, managed to get on that new Renaissance Records compilation, ah. Metal Health 3. So of course, like, yes, yeah. You know, I'm like a junior or sophomore in high school, and I've got my name on a record, and I was like, this is the fucking coolest thing ever. I'm it, never going to stop. But. <laughs> it's kind of a big deal, really, actually. New Renaissance had, they had quite a thing going, and they sort of dropped yeah. all somewhere around about 88, 89. I used to love right. Alan and stuff, you know, and lots of the stuff they had. Blood Feast, I think, might have been on. I know Blood Feast might have been Wild oh, Rat. Yeah. But, um, yeah, they were local. I used to see them live all the time. I saw them like I saw them two years ago <laughs> in Germany. Really? They're still yeah. playing nice. Yeah, <laughs> That's so what was it like uh, back in your area or what bands were around or what, how, you know, how, what led you to that first regurgitation demo? Because that's kind of, yeah, I mean, cooking into a bit of nostalgic things with, you know, with people as well on the podcast. Yeah, we had a, I mean, it was a pretty good scene around here when I was a kid and it was only, a, you know, a 20 minute drive to, to Manhattan. I, I used to live just right, right outside of Manhattan in New Jersey. Mm. So, I mean, uh, I remember buying a fake ID just so I could get into CBGBs for hardcore matinees and stuff like that. Okay. But I was like, I was like 15, 14, 15 years old and would constantly get beat on by skinheads and shit. Cause it's like, yeah. I, I would have long hair and show up to the, you know, the COC show at CBGBs. And it's like, you know, that they'd wait for you to get into the pit and then pound the shit out of you. Yeah. It was, a, it was yeah. a rite of passage, I guess. But even New Jersey was great. I mean, um, like you said, Blood Feast were around. There was, uh, what other bands were around at that time? Was, it, uh, was Immolation from New Jersey, maybe? Yeah, I think. Suffocation. Right, in, Incantation, I think, started yeah, yeah. in New Jersey. I remember I used to know John before, when he was in Revenant, before he, oh yeah, before he <laughs> even started that band. Yeah, yeah Revenant, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, what else? There was like a band called Hades that was around. Oh, yeah. Um, but I mean, like a lot of the a lot of the scene was around New York, and uh, you know, Lemoore's was 
back in the day, they were even they were booking, you know, totally underground amateur bands, which was awesome because you'd go to see like, I don't know, Overkill or or a Possessed. And then there'd be like three local, you know, th- new young thrash bands opening up. So it was just even the bigger clubs were putting on shows where you'd be able to see underground thrash and speed metal. It was you know, in retrospect, it was pretty incredible, actually. But you kind of veered more into now, the recurrent Edition demo. I mean, it's a pretty niche reference, but that's where yeah. I come from. And then kind of go between that and the new Canate album. Um, <laughs> I can see it through. I can hear a kind of through line. But what drew you to do like the recurrentation and old lady driver? That's that is more kind of like hectic grindcore with kind of some dissonance or something, yeah. as opposed to speed or thrash metal. Why did you veer off into more of that? angle than you know i don't know putting on studs and leather and being speed metal then yeah i guess it was just the timing because uh you know right after we started doing regurgitation that's when uh earache records just started yeah. up and i discovered uh the first napalm death records so uh-huh. if you listen to the early regurgitations the first demo was much more inspired by european thrash like uh creator yeah, yeah. And, and Sodom and, uh, you know, we were big fans of like Sepultura, their first two Sepultura records back then. So everything was just sort of blackened and drenched in reverb. And then yeah. the second demo was a little bit more, it still had those European influences, but there was a lot of Bay Area thrash in there too as well. But it was also sort of speeding up a little bit, getting a little bit more more aggressive. And then when I heard the first Napalm Death record, I was just like, what? what the fuck is this yeah after that i discovered you know that repulsion had done it even before them and it was just like you know i was that that's what i wanted to do i was so excited about it so you know we sort of shifted over from regurgitation to old lady drivers got alan in the band and then it went on from there i mean i i sort of wish our early grindcore stuff wasn't as uh like comedic as it turned out to be yeah. And Alan was obsessed with the sort of, you know, ridiculous themes of like old ladies and shit yeah. like that. It's just, I mean, it's, it's funny you say that because that's what sort of would put me off in 1980. Yeah. So, because I was purely, you know, turned the cross towards hell. Um, oh, yeah. Kind of little teenage dude just. And <laughs> even, even though I, I liked the, um, you know, I liked the sounds on the record and I had the regurgitation demo trading. And was OLD, did you make that first grind crusher vinyl? I can't remember. Yeah, uh, not the vinyl. I think we were a bonus track on the CD. I, yeah, possibly even on the cassette as well, because I think yeah. I, because it was Filthy Christians or something was on there, and there was some mm-hmm. great stuff. And I, I liked it, no doubt about it at the time, but I think the imagery kind of put me yeah. off a little bit, you know, which is a bit yeah, interesting, because yeah. it's sort of ahead of its kind of time as well, though, you know? Yeah, I mean, I was a kid when we did that, so I didn't... Yeah. You know, if it made me laugh, I was up for it. Yeah. But, you know, uh, I mean, for example, we did a three track demo after that, that uh, that became a split seven inch with ass suck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, the the themes were getting a little bit darker and more violent. But then the music, there was really no comedy in the music at all. So I think that was I wish we had sort of pursued a direction more like that than what we initially did with the the first it's funny because that's that's one of the things that stuck out from uh, the you know the extensive biography I'm looking at here that I remember hearing at the time and I always thought it was kind of cool for you it crossed my mind at the time that like oh old lady drivers couldn't be 
shortened to OLD, which also sounded mm -hmm. kind of cool because you had DOR, yeah. MOD, and SOD. Yeah. And that's pretty. They've lucked out there by just calling them yeah, right. OLD. But then, <laughs> then you kind of skipped on to them to do some score and stuff, though, right? Which I know is yeah, a, yeah. a lot of people ask me to ask you about that. Um, yeah. I said I was going to talk to you, and they were like, oh, ask him about Scorn, which, of course, Harris <laughs> in it. That must have been a bit of a mindfuck to, to do that, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, I had known Mick, you know, since since we started tape trading back in the day. So, uh, mm -hmm. and they had various guitarists along the way. And um, but I mean, when he asked me to to work on that record, I was pretty psyched because I had always been a big fan of what he did, and, and including his ship to Scorn, basically. But um, and at, I mean, at that time, they were changing a lot too, and what I was doing as a solo artist. Mm. I was changing a lot, you know, a lot of what I was doing. We were all moving towards a, you know, a headier sort of more cerebral type of music. So, uh, and you know, there's a pretty big shift between uh, Colossus and Evanescence for that band. So yeah. when, when I showed up in England and they played me what, you know, they're tracking and what they had already put together, it was, it's like, oh, I, I'm going to have to completely rethink my approach to what's going on here. Uh, you know, a welcome sort of change because it gave me room to just experiment with the guitar and the guitar synth a lot more. Because mm. that's, I mean, that's 94, right? We're, we're, we're Sometime, at, yeah, I think so. Mm. I think you got it. Um, we were doing a bunch of other things at the time, too. We were working on other, like, uh, collaborations and whatnot, but that was... That was probably that. Well, it obviously had the most impact. I think that that record yeah. on on what I was doing and and their career. I mean, that record really took off. We did a lot of touring for that record. Yeah, and uh, you know, it was a shame what happened afterwards. The dissolution of the sort of band that was Scorn, because yeah. I think it it probably could have, you know, really really ascended as far as you know a popular band in Europe. I, I think so, because there was certainly, um, Eric was an interesting kind of label in the sense that I had friends who were, like when the Prodigy came out in 91, 92, and Ecstasy came into Dublin, it split the metal scene a bit, you know, fractured it. Um, you know, the drugs were coming in, changing the sort of street violence vibe that Dublin had. And the Prodigy also moved some people sideways. But of course, it was all kind of working class. So you had death metal kids and people getting into drugs and electronic and that kind of stuff. And that was sort of gateway. And they, they were quite, I remember there being quite a lot of friends of mine who were sort of peripheral earwig enthusiasts. Yeah. Uh, who weren't death metal kids, but they wanted to know about Godflesh. And then when Scorn came along, they were very interested in whatever that yeah. was. Um, it somehow seemed to be around the same time as I remember hearing Portishead for the first time, maybe 94, 95, 96, or yeah. other electronics. They're not, I'm not sure if you can really pull them all into the same, um, into the same. I don't know, sphere or something like this, but certainly there were a lot of people very interested in what was going on and the direction Godflesh were moving in as well. And then, oh, it, yeah. as you say, it just sort of disappeared a bit. Yeah, yeah. I remember uh, <laughs> Mick was staying at my place in New Jersey when I think Dig from Eric had sent us a copy of the, the first Godflesh EP. Oh, yeah. And that was like a huge revelation for us because we were both leaning towards a more... Uh, electronic kind of industrial type of music at that point but we weren't really we we weren't really releasing anything like that at the time mm. and when you know it was sort of a stigma back then when you would change genres or just yeah, yeah. You know, uh, 
sort of try to expand your the the genre the genre that you're working in at all people you know a lot of purist ideology in the scene at that time and you know like old used to get a lot of shit for using drum machines and samplers live in, yeah. in a metal setting but when we heard that record it was just like holy shit this is you know this is the exact mindset that that we're in and that we want to sort of explore and that you know there wasn't much existing at the time musically that was like that where it was just sort of smashing together or tearing apart like you know heavy genres of music so that that first godflesh ep was a big was it like a, a revelation for us really yeah i think the first i think it was Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Must have been the Grind Crusher EP the first time hearing Street Cleaner for me and then mm. and being confused by what was going on because not really having a reference point of maybe some swans or something quite yet or not really quite understanding, you know, you're mainly listening to like fucking Deicide and Morbid Angel, but right. it did struck quite a big nerve with death metal people. I think it opened a lot of gates and a lot of doors. I mean, they just played yeah, it yeah. and it was fucking sold out, you know, still yeah. able to pull five, 600 people, you know? Yeah. You can, it's like, you, you can still be brutally heavy, but you don't have to be fast and you don't have to have like death metal vocals or mm. like, you know, goofy, gory, topics for your lyrics or anything you know it was pretty grown up in a sort of apocalyptic kind of way yeah absolutely and even when you listen it's it's how many years ago did that come out you listen to it and it still sounds completely relevant 32 33 years i guess yeah 33 years if you think about that yeah You, you i a lot of the music like that that comes out currently I don't, I don't hear the same things and I don't feel, mm. I don't feel the same way when I listen to it. It's, it's like, well, there's been so much precedence at this point where it's yeah. like, you know, you can see the influences, but when something like that just comes out of nowhere and doesn't have any 
like you're saying, it's like there aren't a lot of concrete reference points. It's like, no. holy shit, this is this is something special. This is different. I think it's it's complicated because I, I'm not one of those guys that only listens to old music. I'd still try and hear mm -hmm. things and get into new things right. and stuff. Um, but it's very hard to compete with the virgin territory of being also just a kind of young a young person exploring the yeah. as at you at the beginning. I mean, you know, it still happens, thankfully, or else I'd feel very jaded and very old. But <laughs> less so in, I suppose, some areas of metal because you've been into it for such a long time. You know, like I was somebody asked me to do your top twenty top twenty death metal albums from before two thousand and after, and then say, would any from after two thousand get into the pre two thousand? I was like, fucking hell, are you asking me to? <laughs> to stand up something against seven churches or autism. Yeah, right. I'm not sure I can do that. But yeah. do, you, do you think that that time with Scorn and all that, I mean, looking at the collaborative releases here, I mean, there's so much stuff that you're doing. Did, did the sort of collaborative nature of Scorn sort of set that ball rolling? Because it wasn't a very metal thing to do, to have names of people on your releases. Like, it's a really quite unusual place to go in 1967, yeah. you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, yeah, I guess it was. I guess it was a bit of a you know a jumping off point for the way things were gonna be presented afterwards. I mean, uh, you know, we all we all I sort mean, of splintered after that. And I mean, you have a collaborative yeah. release from '94, which is before your first solo album. I'm just looking at it here, '96. So. God, I wish I, I wish I'd had the fucking uh, gumption or guts or available uh, possibility to do things like that. It seems like we're living in a different world somewhere in Ireland. Yeah, but that was the. Sorry, I interrupted you there. But the the collaborative stuff. It's just it's quite. Uh, and then you've got one in Mick, with Mick Harris in '96. I can see. But right, right. It's how did you collapse album? Yeah. Yeah, that certainly, certainly is it. But then you sort of went into years and seems like years and years of making that kind of music. Was that kind of hand in hand because you were just decided that the studio was the place you'd rather be than on the road, which is what most I people think it, it had a lot to do with uh, the label landscape and the fact that labels were popping up, smaller labels that were willing to put out, you know, uh, commercially non-viable music that, you know, it's like, we were always experimenting with sound and equipment and making recordings like Mick had his lull project. Like we were really obsessed with the idea of, you know, like drifting droning music in, in a heavier sense. And, you know, before then there weren't a lot of labels willing to do, do that stuff. I mean, there were sporadic labels here and there in Europe that would release, you know, concrete music, uh, electroacoustic music, stuff like that. But it was all very highbrow and clinical. And you mm. had to, you know, be part of some institution to gain any sort of, uh, you know, serious views of your work. And, you know, here we are, like, just cranking out strange music with, you know, limited equipment. And but then labels were popping up that would, you know, press 500 copies of a CD or a thousand copies. And it suddenly became viable to make that kind of music for, for release. And, uh, you know, so basically we, we already had tons of recordings and we were constantly recording things on our own doing, I guess what you call solo recordings yeah. with no place to actually, you know, release them. And then all of a sudden there was this 
these opportunities to actually put some of that stuff out there. And, you know, as time progressed, it's like, you know, uh, like they, they coined that term isolationism so that they mm. have kind of, I guess, a way to market this stuff. At that, I think at that point, that, that kind of music was becoming uh, relatively popular, uh, at least compared to the, you know, the exposure it had before then. But uh, you could actually start to, I guess, make a, some kind of a career for yourself doing that kind of music. I mean, uh, why do you think the landscape changed then in the middle of the 90s? Was it just sort of a musical shift? Um, I, I can, probably I can, a combination of that and the affordability of the of the gear. Uh, you know, so, at the yeah. end of at the end of the twentieth century, you had the the ease of acquiring you know digital recording setups for your computer. I mm. mean, I I had wanted to build a project studio for a decade at least before um, computer audio became affordable and accessible. And it's like, I mean, I my home studio was a four track cassette until 1999 when I bought my first PC, yeah. got a sound card, Cubase. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I can, I can record a 24 track, you know, record at my own house now. It's just, so, you know, it's just, it's, it's an overdrive today. I mean, everybody is recording, everybody's releasing music, but back then it was still relatively new and, uh, uh, you know, a niche market for that kind of stuff. So it's like, if you were serious about it, you would, you'd spend the money, get set up. And, you know, at the time there still seemed to be a good, a good amount of labels that were, you know, releasing that kind of stuff. I mean, so I, I find that kind of sometimes the, the amount of mu music now is, is I find it sometimes overwhelming to try and yeah, find, absolutely. gain some leverage in it, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, I wanted to ask you about the technology and stuff, but I might as well ask you this. I mean, um, I have, a, you know, some people, friends of mine involved in the kind of, I suppose, soundtrack music in terms of ads and a couple of people who are, who are earning a lot of money doing, um, you know, um, computer game stuff. And it feels like this is the first stuff, the droning landscape stuff that's going to be, um, you know, moved out the door by AI because that's, you know, there's, there's no, you don't need the uncanny value of a voice or something like to replicate it. It feels like they're on borrowed time um, somehow in terms yeah. of some yeah. of the, the financial things they were doing. I don't know. Why do you feel any sort of weight of that kind of thing? Um, not so much weight as just disappointment. I mean, uh, you know, I didn't even realize what, this what AI technology was capable of until we were we were actually mixing the Conate record and Randall Dunn was talking about it and so I asked him about it I was generally you know uh, uneducated on the whole thing and he he pulls yep. out this video on his phone which is basically a pop a pop song with complete with video a full video plays the whole thing for me and it's like this this is all AI nobody's yeah. actually composed or produced this this was made artificially i couldn't fucking believe it yeah. i mean it it sounded like any any random pop song you pull off the the internet or the radio it's you yeah. know it's like it's viable uh but at the same time i mean something was just off about it mm. the people looked a little strange in the video the vocals sounded 
Yeah, for now, right? Yeah. The vocal sounded a little strange. There's something off about it. Mm. But, uh, you know, I mean, it seems like every new technology that is, that's invented has some kind of detrimental impact. I mean, look at what home recording did to the to the studio suites and yeah. major studios. I mean, mastering studios, you know, people can master at home on their computer. What do they need, uh, you know, $2,000 limiter for? I, I mean, I, I see the comparisons, but I think that it's probably a little bit more intellectually um what you, could you call it compromised than that in the sense that you're talking about oh, yeah. self-learning that doesn't actually need human input i mean right it's um yeah it's the thing about it often i see online is it's kind of like this two middle-aged dudes talking about the effects of ai because they have a connection <laughs> to art and creativity um and then <laughs> real conversation is how does an 11 year old uh, relate to this when they're 15 which is when you know we started bands when we started to make and create music if all you need to do yeah. is well today i would like a new joy division album you could take right could right do that you could technically go i would like a new old album in the style of this in this studio mm -hmm. mastered by and you could it, it could just go in 15 minutes here you go here's your new right right, right. Mac album um from 1970 yeah, I think and then it's just it's for our that. brains to take in you know yeah, I think the problem with that is, well, people like me that are constantly looking for something new that hasn't been thought of before or done before. And with AI, you're basically, uh, it you know, it develops these, these pieces of music or art solely by, you know, uh, referencing things that everything that's been done in the past. So it's like, mm, how is yeah. AI going to come up with a new genre of music that actually makes sense or that, you know, it's a very good I point. Think, I think if, no, I think if you're, uh, if you're interested in human creativity, then you're, you're not going to get what you need out of AI because it's just, it's not human creativity. It's a it's yeah. a it's a mashup of everything that's come before it, basically. Yeah, it's just cogging. It's just you know, okay, but you're pulling or pooling all of the influences, all of the things, and just yeah. something. If you said, hey, um, if you said, hey, we have a new, let's say you're the, a death metal band playing now, and you go, I would like a new album in the style of Dan Seagrave. It's not like as if you could, you were an artist who's influenced by Dan Seagrave and maybe adding your right. own. It's just approximating. Uh, all of the things that yeah or um I, on some level i'm kind of glad to have had 30 plus years of making music behind me mm -hmm. even though i don't enjoy <laughs> the benefits of growing old so much sometimes <laughs> uh, i'm going to play a football match now shortly and i'll, I'll feel oh, okay. tomorrow but at the same time um i'm glad to have the kind of looking back over it because it was sort of seems now like starting a band right now has got so many other pitfalls or maybe that's yeah. imagining that's how it is for young people i don't know yeah i mean i you know i talk to a lot of younger artists that are just starting bands and doing recordings you know mastering i master a lot of people's first recordings and stuff like that and yeah i mean i think about what it takes to be in a band when you're actually when you have your foot in the door and it's exhausting to me to even think about it i can't <sighs> I can't even think of what these younger people are going to have to go through. I mean, occasionally I'll I'll work on a record and, uh, you know, maybe I'll be friendly with the with the artists and we'll reach out for them, uh, 
to various labels. I, I rarely ever do it, but every now and then, like, a, you know, a sophomore or freshman recording just like blows me away. And it's mm. like, well, I'd like to help these people try to, you know, get started at least. And it's like, where do you even start these days? There are so many labels and labels seem to be very clicky these days. Like they want to, they want to stay within their boundaries and not take chances on music. On yeah. Something but they're, also, they... they're also requiring bands to be their own PR in that. Yeah. I, I mean, for an awful lot of labels, they're not going to sign a band unless they already have a digital imprint from which they can work with. Right. And right. they might release your album, but then it's up to you to keep being your own PR. Sure. It, it is completely exhausting. It's, yeah. it's exhausting when you're 23 and you understand all the technology, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But the idea of, um, you know, kind of stepping up the rungs of the ladder to reach mm -hmm. some sort of place where you can uh, begin to uh, pay for the responsibilities of life that are going to be incoming as you get that bit older seem yeah. further and further away. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And even the bands that are well established, it's, you know, it's not like you can just sit back and, and rely on that to make a living. Like, no. you really have to be a large drawing uh artists these days to be able to you know make a comfortable living off of it yeah, yeah and yeah i don't you know with more and more music being released every year uh and then the possibility of ai stepping in and clouding the in the atmosphere it's like i i wouldn't want to be a young artist these days um yeah. You know, I mean, I, as much as you say, I have a, a large discography or Wikipedia page. I work every day, man. I'm I'm here <laughs> Monday through Friday. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I wasn't I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't insinuating that uh, the solo releases five were were firing in there. You were yeah. just cashing all these checks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But even even when I was doing a lot of my own music, like you know, back in the days of old and Scorn and mm -hmm. uh, the early days of Connate, you know, it wasn't really enough to make a living off of. Yeah, you yeah. have to have the side hustle. You have to Many either have hustle. a yeah, like you know, a career and you know, selling gear or selling records on the side. It's like you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't trade it for anything because I've been free to do whatever the hell I want for most of my life. But uh, yeah, the the idea of starting a band or being a musician as a career is that's that's a big one these days and so what was the what was the impulse then considering all of this for the canate record just you just were just working on it kind of in the evening sort of you know in the laboratory downstairs fucking cooking yeah, it. i mean i guess at this point in my career uh you know i can sort of make the time when i need to um I can be strategic about scheduling mastering work so that I, I have time to do stuff like that. Um, but, you know, it's like every, you know, if I had to take off a week to like, you know, we did two mix sessions on the record and each one I had to take a week off and then you have to, you know, pay for your expenses in a city like New York. Um, yeah. You know, I'm not home doing my real job making a living. So yeah. it's like, you know, just me. It's more of a at this point, I you just have to make sacrifices to make it happen. Um, oh, yeah. That's it. You know, once now that it's done, and we'll, you know, we're planning live shows and stuff like that. There's oh, a, there's okay. an opportunity to make money, but I mean, that's money is the is the last reason that we're doing it. I mean, we're we're in the hole for making this record. We we spent yeah. a good amount of money of our own making this record. We recouped some of it so far, but you know, it's we did it 
can honestly say we did it for the music itself. And live shows are going to be coming. That's um, an interesting, uh, I mean, were you thinking about that when you were making the record that you're going to? Yeah, sure. I mean, we weren't going to decide anything until the record was done and, and, you know, everybody's got busy schedules. So it's really the hardest part of it is making the, the scheduling and logistics work. So, mm. but we, you know, we're, we're planning on, on 2024 doing, you know, getting started with some, well, some festivals and shows. Well, that's one thing that's at least as, as different from years ago is that there's yeah. a ready made kind of like festival run oh yeah, um, yeah for you that you can pop in and out you don't need to do tuesday in rochester to 42 people or <laughs> you, know, you don't need to do that anymore too old for that shit yeah and the festival <laughs> experience is yeah, it's i love it you know going back and forth yeah. you know different things every weekend but yeah that's kind of like a new and uh, maybe that'll be like a sort of um an interesting middle-aged lease of life for the whole thing again right, right. be able to just kind of step in without quite so much of the logistics although you know so. yeah i mean you know the offers that we've been feeling for this have you know it's there's no comparison to when we were in like an active band in the yeah. early 21st century it was just you know we we could make it work back then because we all had day jobs yeah but uh you know now it's like you know it it's it's commercially viable to do something like that which is yeah definitely didn't exist when we were around before. And that, my friends, is where we left it. Shorter, sharper, and sweeter than uh, some of the usual chats. But there you have it. 40 minutes. Okay. We shall see you next time. Over and out. Greetings from Planet Satan, Agitators Anonymous. Need to stock up on any weather wardrobe staples? Check out American Giant for hoodies, jackets, sweats, and more pieces you can wear anywhere. All made right here in the USA. Go to American-Giant.com and use code AnyStyle24 for 20% off your order. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.